Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Obviously a little different situation going on today for those who are watching us. Um, I am in New York and Crystal is in DC. And uh, why don't you go ahead and tell the lovely people why that is. Well, we are recording this earlier than we normally do uh, because I am going to be a guest on Bill Maher's show, Real Time, on HBO. So we have to fly to L.A. on Thursday when we normally tape the show. So that is what's happening. Yeah, so there you have it. And I will be giving everybody amazing uh, access behind the scenes. I will be with Crystal in L.A. I... I'm absolutely dreading the flight because <laughs> I hate flying. Um, a long flight. If there's a doctor out there, please prescribe me a million Xanax or Klonopin or whatever so I can get through that. So we've actually, uh, we've never flown together, Kyle. So what should I expect? Nothing. I sit there looking normal while inside I'm like, fuck this, fuck this, fuck this, really? fuck this, fuck this, <laughs> so fuck you, this, there's fuck no this, visible. Fuck this. I'll be able to pick up on your signs of stress though, don't you think? You just go quiet. You just get quiet when you're stressed. Right. So that's what will happen. That's I'll, be what okay. <laughs> I'll be on the plane like I don't want to be on a plane right you'll now. You'll be irritated yeah. and quiet. That's what you'll be. Very likely, yes. Very likely, <laughs> yes. I also just hate the, the hassle of, like, you know, your bags and TSA and this and that. And, you know, it's like a whole production just to get – I would literally rather drive to California than, <laughs> than fly. But anyway, we're going – it's, it'll be fun. I'm going to record everything behind the scenes so people can see me panicking and whatnot and they can speak <laughs> uh, the hotel and they can see how. But what will be really funny is that, like, I've been criticizing Bill Barr on a regular basis recently because he's had yeah. a whole bunch of terrible takes. And so yeah. there's a decent chance I'll have to meet him and it'll be fun just being like, hey, man, and just gauging whether or not he's seen me shit on him at all. So, I mean, you, you will almost definitely meet him for sure. Um, I mean, this is this is my third time doing the show. Last time was during the 2020 primary, um, where <laughs> the most uh, noteworthy part of my appearance was he he made this comment like, you know, I think we just need this a generic Democrat. I'm looking hard at Amy Klobuchar. <laughs> my face that I made just organically, and the camera happened to catch it. That was kind of like the most notable moment from the uh, from the episode. So. Yeah, it's always it's a different experience doing that show. Just the level of production, the budget they have, it's like on a real Hollywood set. You know, they fly you there, they put you up in a nice hotel. They I mean, the whole thing is just a lot different than cable news. And I don't even know, are they do they still have live audiences in the studio because that's the other part of the energy that I is very different. I think they do, but he only has two guests on the panel, I think. Right. He has two people and he used to have three people. I wasn't sure if they people. killed the, the live audience post-COVID. No. I mean, there might be fewer people, but yeah. there's still people. Because that's yeah, just a very, I mean, it's a very different energy with the audience I, in the room. I used to really look up to Bill Maher. He was a big inspiration for me to even get into politics and political commentary and stuff. And then obviously over time as I grew and I viewed his... His uh, what I used to think was amazing confidence became like arrogant smugness, and so and is I think his political opinions got worse going from Bernie Sanders to Amy Klobuchar. I would um, I would agree with that, yes. Yeah, but it, it'll you know it, it'll be it'll be an interesting thing, and I'm happy that I'm gonna get to see the way the sausage is made. What really I what I didn't like is hearing about the way in which. Like, he sort of knows what everybody's going to say before they say it because his staff gets, like, opinions from everybody on everything. Yeah, but that's, typi that's typical. I mean, I cable, that's cable not... news does that, too. So I I'm just saying that. don't single him out because that's very standard, like, practice where the host 
knows you're supposed to send in your talking points of what you think about X and Y and Z issue. You don't know what the host is going to throw at you, but they're sort of, they have a leg up. They're prepared exactly, to be able to rebut your arguments. Yeah. That's super inauthentic and it's nothing like being somebody who is a host. I know that that's not a real conversation. That's you rigging it beforehand. Mm -hmm. So I look at that and I'm like, kind of pathetic, but anyway, um, it'll be fun and I'll record a bunch of stuff behind the scenes and, so, but uh, before any of that happens, we have a, a lovely conversation upcoming with Mike Figueredo of the Humanist Report, and uh, you know he's been he's been in this YouTube game for a while. He's now on Twitch, and there's a bunch of interesting stuff to talk to him about. So, everybody, check it out. Welcome, Mike from the Humanist Report. Thanks so much for joining us, man. Um, so many things I want to talk to you about. First of all, I know that um, you've been at this for a while now. You know, like how long mm -hmm. have you been? Hosting your show on YouTube. Tell everybody about that. We're uh, about to hit seven years, I want to say, this year. So it's been a really long time, long enough for my brain to rot completely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's been a while. Yeah, I think of you as, like, a, a young up-and-comer, but, like, you're not hmm. a young up-and-comer anymore. Like, you're, you're, you're a veteran now, you know? Yeah, I, I feel like, like, not to toot my own horn, but I kind of feel like I'm one of the OGs, but not one of the core OGs, like you've been in this way, way longer than me. So I feel like I was the second wave, but mm. it's been long enough to where I've been one of those people who's just always been around where I kind of peaked. And now I'm just, I'm there, you know, I'm lingering, but you know, still, uh, still trying to do my thing, <laughs> I guess. You are doing a lot more than lingering. I mean, how do you feel like the channel has evolved and do you feel like there's a kind of a unique challenge for, left media right now, like in the post-burning moment? Yeah, I, I kind of feel like these last couple of years has been me going through growing pains and I'm trying to find a way to enjoy talking about politics again. Mm. You know, when I started this channel, I couldn't shut up about it. I, it was, it consumed me in a good way. I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, and I was always kind of like a political science nerd. I, I was, you know, getting my PhD when I started the program. It was my life. And I really, like, I could talk about it nonstop. But, like, since 2020, since the end of Bernie, downfall of the left in the U.S., arguably, it just felt like my purpose had kind of diminished because my channel blew up because of Bernie Sanders. Um, and I never expected that. I thought that it would be, like, this really small niche channel because Bernie Sanders was so obscure at the time. Nobody really knew about him, but I followed him for a really long time. So I thought, you know, if I'm one of these Bernie boosters— Nobody's going to watch, but I think it would be so fun to, like, develop this small community centered around, you know, progressive politics. Um, and after 2020, it was me trying to figure out what do I do? Where, where do we go from here? Try to reassess my game plan because I felt like all the strategies prior that I thought would work had kind of failed. You know, we, we can't get the presidency, so can we elect members to Congress? Yeah, but that's not necessarily the you know, the uh, panacea that I expected it to be initially as well. So yeah. these last couple of years has been kind of honestly just me going through this doomer phase, not trying to push that off on my viewers, but trying to find a way to move forward, trying to grab onto whatever little bit of hopium I can find. And this year, I kind of feel like I'm refinding my um, my stride. Last year was the worst year ever for the channel. We netted zero new subscribers at the end of the year. This year, I kind of feel like I'm enjoying it again, 
And I think that's reflected in the viewers. And the reason why I'm enjoying it isn't necessarily because I've found like a new purpose or whatever, but just because I, I found ways to tune out. So that way when I do my show, it's not just me venting and ranting. It's me trying to, um, I don't know, extract whatever value I can and enjoyment and sometimes even entertainment from American politics. Um, and it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's okay. It's going, it's going okay. You're, uh, you're going to get me on my soapbox now over the zero net subscribers thing. Cause I'm in the zero yeah. net subscriber camp as well. Welcome to the club. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, part of it, part of it is definitely that it's the post, you know, after the election with the downfall of Bernie, sort of the enthusiasm fell off, but then obviously a big part yeah. of that is the YouTube algorithm as well. Mm -hmm. And we have a wonderful YouTube rep who's a very kind, sweet guy. And we talked to him about this and other issues as well. And he swears up and down, like, no, 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 there's, you know, the algorithm is not, uh, you know, favoring or disfavoring anybody in particular. And, but I, you know, I remember I covered the segment when the YouTube CEO announced to the world, like, yeah, we're going to prioritize mm -hmm. authoritative content in the news and politics field. And it happened to perfectly coincide with her saying that the, the total, I mean, 88% reduction in sub 88%. Yeah. Now you want to tell me, Kyle, after the election, you're going to get hit with a 35% reduction. Hey, fair, man. There was just an election. Now there's not, but 88% is out of this world. So let me ask you, cause I know you just recently, mm -hmm. um, moved over to Twitch too. So mm -hmm. how's that going? What made you decide to make that jump? And also, do you have to live stream a lot more being on Twitch? Isn't Twitch like primarily just live streams? Yeah, it's all live streams. Um, mm -hmm. so basically for Twitch, I do it once per week, um, not enough to really grow, but at the same time, growth on Twitch is very organic. So I live stream for two hours once per week, and the you know the numbers just keep going up um, gradually, which is what it's supposed to do. Which you know it kind of tells me that there's not necessarily this deprioritization of news and politics. Mm. Um, but I, I, in a weird way, I kind of feel like having zero net growth has been good for me. Uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, because if you're not growing, it's hard to find that spark. Like if you feel like all of this is for nothing, you kind of check out a little bit mentally and you find your passion outside of of politics. So, you know, if, if I'm not growing, I'm not gonna, you know, put in all of this work. That was my feeling last year in 2020. Um, and, and that kind of compounds the issue, right? Because if your viewers kind of feel like you're not enjoying this anymore, then I think that really reflects in your content. And I think they just felt they, they could see it through me that I, I was trying to grasp for straws. So I tried to come up with new ways to make it fun. You know, I, I started Dystopian Times last year, which was just a panel show. And I could only do 10 episodes because getting multiple guests is is tough, as you all know. And yes. making sure that they're not arguing with each other prior is, is very difficult. <laughs> um, Forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Yeah. So that, that was, that was tricky. You know, I'll bring it back someday, but maybe in a different form, but I just want, you know, try to do something new. Um, and also I tried to experiment a little bit. Um, you know, I launched a TikTok and posted clips there, but really the one thing that, um, this outside marketing, I think it's really important. You want to diversify if you're a creator, obviously, because you never know with YouTube, it's just, I, I don't trust them at all. You don't trust them. We, none of us trust them at all. Um, but I, I just changed, I, I tried to adapt. Like, I, I think that part of it is the algorithm for sure, but it's hard to not get in your head and ask yourself, like, what am I doing wrong? Like, I feel like, you know, I put out this segment, put, pour my heart and soul into it, spent five hours doing research and it gets 
no views. So, you know, it feels it's hard to keep going if you put this effort in and it doesn't pay off. So for me, I tried to adapt to YouTube, you know, so I read up on the changes. And basically what I've what I've concluded is that we're in this uh, TikTokification phase where now YouTube wants to be like TikTok. So if you want to if you want to grow in this day and age, you've got to adapt. And if you look at TikTok and what makes things go viral there, not necessarily that we're all searching for virality, but it's nice to have eyeballs if you're producing things and putting time into it. Um, but, you know, is, is more snappy. So I was so slow to the news um, because I never like I hated reacting to breaking news because that was never my that was never my role. Like I do analysis. I want to give people my commentary. You know, nobody's getting the news from me. Uh, but in this day and age, the algorithm wants you to be a news person. So like it or not, you've got to adapt. So I've tried to find ways to make it my own where I'll report on a news story that I would usually like to wait a day or two longer just so I can kind of digest it and read about it more. Um, but, you know, I'll give the, the breakdown and then I'll go to other things that I want to talk about. So um, I, I've started to change the way that I, I do um, video clips. So rather than doing a little bit of an introduction, I'll start with the clip, get to it, you know, shorten mm. the time of my videos. So I, I've tried to tweak little things. And for the first time in a year and a half, I've seen growth, actually. Uh, and part of this is probably just coincidental because, you know, it's starting to pick up politically. We're hitting midterms soon. But I, I think that in trying to experiment a little bit more, it's made me find more enjoyment, if that makes sense, just because I, I kind of got into this habit. I'm a very habitual person. You know, it's hard to break me from my routine, but breaking the routine and just trying new things kind of was was fun, you know, for me. And not everything worked like last year. I did like a, a hate comment video where I just had different people read hate comments, different creators. And that was really fun. It it died. No, like nobody watched it, which was really frustrating. But, you know, it just maybe that's a positive thing, though. <laughs> Ultimately, that I people are so. like, I don't want to hear all this negativity. Maybe that's actually a good thing. <laughs> that's the way I took it. Right. Where it's like, I don't want to hear them talk horribly about Mike. But, you know, just trying to and I feel like I'm enjoying it again. Right. And I, it's the algorithm for sure. But I think that it was me because I if I like if I look back to the 2021 videos, you could just see no soul like behind my eyes. It was just dead <laughs> black. Yeah. And that was, you know, and that's not to say that that doesn't lead to good content, because in 2020, like I, we were all on fire. Right. I was on fire. But, you know, there, there's a time where I feel like, you know, you can't fight past the exhaustion and it's going to come through. And, and part of it is I think that my audience was also exhausted. I think that's yeah. true with all of us. Right. Yeah. Where, mm -hmm. you know, we, we have this hope. And then, you know, we have that high, high. And then afterwards, there's going to be these really low lows where people just can't take it. Um, so I think that everyone is going to probably bounce back come election time. But I'm kind of it was nice to have like a break, for lack of a better word, where I didn't have growth because I didn't feel that pressure. And it, it kind of led to me not being so hard on myself if I mentally check out for the weekend. And now well, I actually do that regardless. And it, it sounds like it forced some sort of like you know, creative experimentation that has actually led you to a place that, with the channel that you're, that you like, that you're happy that you did and that, you know, provide an additional spark to you. I mean, I relate to a mm -hmm. lot of what you said. Obviously, my um, trajectory has been a little bit different than either of you guys. And since we just launched Breaking Points a year ago, you know, we had the excitement of like, oh, it's a new thing. And of course, you know, when you start from zero and you bring over your existing fan base, of course, you're going to have rapid growth to start with, but in terms of how I felt about the political system, I definitely relate to a lot of what you're saying. And for me, um, 
first of all, it can be very freeing when you separate yourself from like, I, you know, I'm going to be super fixated on what are the views and how many people I'm reaching and focus more on the process. Um, mm -hmm. I don't always succeed at that. Part of what we've done at Breaking Points to make that mental space um, a little bit easier to access is by leaning more into the podcast format um, mm. versus, you know, YouTube and the algorithm and all of that because obviously the podcast landscape has um, less algorithmic spin on the ball. Um, but the other thing that for me has been a little reinvigorating this year has been the labor movement successes because like yeah. you, and I feel like, you know, this is very, I think a lot of people in the left space will feel this way. Yeah, Bernie Bernie's blocked, doesn't work out. Um, the, you know, squad members not always living up to the expectations that we would want them mm -hmm. to. And as you said, certainly not a panacea there. But the the unexpected energy and rise of the labor movement has kind of given me it's something I've always focused a lot on and cared a lot about, but it's sort of given me a new renewed hope and a renewed answer of what progress, what form it could actually take, what path might lead us there. And um, Kyle, I can't remember who we were talking to, you might remember, who said, you know what, if we had had like a, a really invigorated and, uh, you know, true like mass labor movement behind Bernie, then some of the projections and, and predictions that have been made about bringing in new people and who's going to show up and how that's going to work out, he may have had the ground forces to actually be able to pull it off and, and um, overcome the obstacles that were laid in front of him. So that's kind of given me some new uh, direction and, and spark and snapped me a little bit out of my own doomerism recently. Yeah, I would agree. It's it's nice to see that um, not all of the left went to sleep. Like with Obama, you know, we all were there. We all felt the hope initially, and then we saw how the movement went to sleep, myself included. You know, because I thought, okay, Obama's got it from here. I can go focus on my life. <laughs> um, not necessarily that easy, as we learned. Um, but yeah, the labor movement has really, really, um, it's given me a little bit of hope. Um, and it's not like I'm staking all of my hopes and dreams on that because I've learned to not necessarily jump on any one bandwagon as like the ticket to victory. But that's certainly helped. And also just in terms of like my show, trying to cover things that I just want to talk about. Like mm. I tried to avoid talking about gay rights and stuff on the channel because I didn't want to be the gay guy who always talked about gay rights. But I thought, you know, no, this is important and my perspective matters, so I want to talk about it. I would try to go out of my way to make sure that I was really balancing everything. So if I did a video on healthcare one week, then, you know, I couldn't talk about that for maybe like at least one week. I'd have to do a video on education. And just trying to take this box that I put myself in and mm. get out of it, mm. it's it's helped, I think, because I'm, you know, if some weeks I focus on one thing, then that's that's just the way it is. Like, for example, like with the Roan news that we got, I talked about abortion basically all week. I probably did like five or six videos on it, whereas before I would force myself to talk about it once, maybe twice. Hmm. Um, and so just like changing the way that I do things, I think it did help. And even if algorithmically, I'm just kind of like, thinking that it helped, at least mentally it helped. And that is also really important because I feel like, okay, this is my show again. Like it, it's not just me going through the motions. It's me trying to get some value out of it. And honestly, like, I, I don't know what I'm looking for with the show. And I asked myself this question, like, what is my goal with the show? And I think that ultimately 
my goal is to one, bring people over to the left and two, radicalize normies, radicalize the MSNBC liberals, you know, who mm. hate Bernie Sanders. Um, and, and so just even focusing on um, non-news things and just having a conversation, you know, on my Twitch streams, what I'll do is we'll talk about things. Sometimes, you know, the chat will ask a question and sometimes I'll make a, a segment out of that on YouTube. So lately I've been talking a lot about like atheism and my, you know, experience growing up as a religious fundamentalist, you know, raised in the church. We'll talk about, actually a couple of weeks ago, um, we talked about a Reddit thread where this guy said that he went through this really cringy anti-SJW phase, but uh, secular talks Kyle Kalinske and Mike from the Humanist Report helped to uh, bring him out of that. He was a fan of Steven Crowder. And I thought, you know, this, it feels kind of, like it feels autofallacious to talk about this, but at the same time, it's fun. So I want to talk about it. It's, it's like a victory that I want to celebrate, right? Um, so yeah. yeah, just, just trying to extract some enjoyment has helped me. Like I, I could say algorithmically, maybe it's, it's helped too, but it, I, I care more about like trying to enjoy it because if I'm not enjoying it, my audience isn't going to enjoy it so too. True. And I feel like together yeah. we're all kind of like coming back. We've had our year and a half of just mm -hmm. feeling like shit. Um, <laughs> and, and now we're all kind of like, okay, am I going to be here forever? Now is the time to to pick myself back up and get back in. I don't know what, what the hell to do. I don't know where to go from here, but I'm not going to stop because if I stop, then you get depressed. You just, you, you keep charging ahead. And, and I'm in that phase right now in a month, check back with me. Maybe I'll be in a different space, but currently I feel pretty not optimistic, but I feel motivated. I, I guess you could say. Yeah. You have to, you have to fall in love with the process. The process has to be the point. It can't be some yep. end goal that's, you know, maybe achievable, may not be achievable. It's got to be the process itself has to be the thing that brings meaning and passion and fulfillment and enjoyment. Um, and just like you, I, I do take probably my, you know, my uh, proudest moments are the, you know, the deconversion story of people coming up to me being like, yeah. hey, man, I used to love Ben Shapiro. Now I hate him. Thanks to you. <laughs> that's great. Yep. Uh, I used to be. Uh, I used to think all lefties were crazy, and then now I'm I'm a leftist myself, and uh, you know, thank you for for doing that. I love that more than anything. Yep. Um, you you mentioned there uh, about being gay. I watched a uh, video you did. I think you originally did it on Twitch, but it was posted on YouTube as well, where you talked mm -hmm. about your whole story of coming out to your family and like how difficult it was and all the drama behind the scenes. Um, since Crystal hasn't heard that, and maybe some people listening uh, to this in our audience haven't heard that, walk everybody f through it from the beginning about, you know, your sexuality, how you came out and everything that went on behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, so it's still, honestly, to think that I posted that was a little bit bizarre to me because I, I did the Twitch segment and I didn't really expect to make it into a video, but I thought, you know what, it's kind of embarrassing to talk about yourself that long, but I feel like it can be helpful because before I came out, I watched probably like a hundred videos and other people coming out. Mm. Um, and nobody really talks about that anymore because I, I think that a lot of the need has dissipated. Like this newer generation, they are a lot more confident and their parents are younger. So maybe it's not as necessary, but there's still a lot of people that need it. So I decided to post it, even if it's, it's kind of hard to, um, to talk about it, uh, just because I was also worried that my family would see it. Um, but yeah, so basically... 
I always say that like coming out happens in, in three different parts. The first part is coming out to yourself, which is by far the most difficult. The second part is coming out to like your family and your close friend circle. And then the third part is just the ongoing coming, coming out process, which is, you know, you start a new job, you meet new people. It's always, you're going to come out to them. And it's not like you're going to sit down with them and say, I have to tell you something. You know, it's, it's, it's more informal then, you know, you, you casually mention your, your partner and, you know, I'll bring up my husband or something like that. Um, so yeah, the, the the process of coming out was was really difficult because I was kind of a late bloomer. I didn't come out until I was 22, um, and it was because I was raised very very fundamentalist Christian. My family took me to church every single Sunday and Wednesday, and so from a very young age, you know, I was taught that being gay was a sin. Um, and it was, you know, as I started to kind of grow up and go through puberty, I would think back to all of these times when I was younger where I kind of outed myself in a way and I hope that my family didn't remember. So like the, the furthest memory that I could recall was when I was five and I was arguing with my mom because she, she made like a really nonchalant comment about, well, when you're a grown up and you have a girlfriend someday, you know, you can do this. I don't remember what the context was, uh, but I was arguing with her because I said, no, I'm never going to have a girlfriend. I want to have a boyfriend. <laughs> um, and you know, as a kid, it's not because you realize you're gay, obviously. It's just like, to me, that's what felt natural. Um, and maybe it was a little bit, oh, girls have cooties. You know, I was in that stage. <laughs> but, um, you know, thinking back, it was because I, I always it always felt just like second nature to me. And so, you know, I was, you know, as I was like 10 or 11, then you start to go through puberty and you realize, oh, my God, uh, you know, something's different there. You know, I cringed because I thought, oh, my God, I hope that my mom didn't remember that conversation. Um, and, you know, you you really start to reflect once you realize it. And, you know, when I was like, 17, 18, I realized that I couldn't pass as easily as, as some gay people. I was very flamboyant. I had like the limp wrist, like I was very stereotypical. <laughs> so because I couldn't like, I couldn't trick people as easily, I had to vocalize my homophobia. Mm. Um, so I was mm. one of those stereotypes, right? Like, you know, the pastors who's like very, you know, um, very super flamboyant, but homophobic. I was basically that stereotype because wow. that was the only way that I can convince people that I wasn't gay, you know? And, and so it's, there was a day that really stood out to me where I was like 17 and we were watching home videos. And um, there was a video of me wearing this purple like sweatsuit getting down to the Spice Girls. And I thought, <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> I like, I don't know how to like erase their memory, you know, it, like how could you see that and think that I'm not gay? And so, you know, you kind of do this self-reflection and you realize that, you know, maybe my, my family suspected and that's where the homophobic comments came in. Like, you know, my dad will tell me you're acting like a sissy, you know, mm -hmm. if I'm like, if he sees me prancing around. Um, and, and part of it was, I don't want a gay son. The other part of it was, I don't want you to put yourself in danger because there were, you know, situations where my dad stood up for me. He was always very homophobic. He would read a newspaper article and mention gay people and just go off about it. Um, but at other times, you know, I was I was walking home and our neighbor had came out and said, hey, there goes the little F slur. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like eight or nine. And so I went in and wow. told my dad and he went right over there and said, I will beat your ass if you ever tell my son that call my son that again. Um, so part of it was like protective part of it was, I don't want that to be, you know, the case. So finally, you know, after a long, 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 um, teenage year, uh, teenage period of denying it, seeking out like, um, what is it called? Like those gay conversion clinics. Mm, wow. Oh trying, 
wow. trying to pray away the gay. Um, it was really tough. So um, finally, when I realized, okay, I I'm gay, it was because of the dumbest thing ever. So I was watching Carlos Mencia's show, Might of Mencia, and there was this, um, there was this, I don't know what he was talking about, but he did like a little jingle. It was like, if you think you might be gay, then you're gay. And I was laughing at it. And I'm like, that's so stupid because it clearly doesn't work that way. There's lots of straight men who want to be with other men. That's just the way it is. Like, you know, it was, I just kind of projected and it's like, no, of course, all these guys want to be with hot guys. That's just the way it is. But you know, we just, we suck it up and we be with women uh, and then it, because of that, it like really clicked. I'm like, wait, is it that simple? And I'm like, no, there's no way it's that simple. And then it's like, okay, well, all right. I'm very clearly gay. You know, I've tried to be with girls and it ended in absolute catastrophe. You know, most of the time I would friend zone myself because, you know, I, I, <laughs> I had no romantic interest in, in them whatsoever. I was always a six on the Kinsey scale, which means like exclusively homosexual, zero, you know, attraction whatsoever to women. So from the time I like acknowledged that I was actually gay um, to the time I came out was probably like a two month period because it's so weird. It's it's like this, it's hard to really explain, but you feel like everything about your life finally makes sense. The confusion mm. clears up and you just feel like, oh my God, like I've been living a lie this whole time. And it, it feels like um, I've been lying to myself. And I was always really hard. Like, it's not like, I was surprised, right? Because I fought it the whole time, but that was part of the problem. Like, you know, I, I prayed, you know, I, I um, would go on through these Christian forums about other men with same sex attractions. And I'd try to take their advice, things you can do, watch lesbian porn, uh, all these, <laughs> all these strange things that you would try oh to God. do. And it failed every single time. And so like, you know, when I was young, I realized that there was something definitely weird. Like by the time I was eight, I started to have crushes on boys, not naturally, but you know, just my friends would be like, oh, who do you, which girl do you like? And I'd be like, I don't know. And then I look at, you know, one of the boys in my class, I'm like, I kind of have a crush on him. I hope that doesn't mean that I'm gay. Mm -hmm. So like when I started to realize it, when I started to go through puberty, then it was like, okay, this might be something, maybe it's not. But you know, at a very young age, I think I was like 11, I made a suicide pact with myself and thought, okay, I know the way my family feels. So if there's ever this point where I decide that I'm gay and I want to come out, the best thing to do would be to kill yourself. Oh my mm. God. Wow. Because if you if I were to do that, I thought, would it hurt my family? Yeah. But it would honestly hurt them less wow. than me coming out. That was wow. my thought. And I never really intended to go through, but it was kind of like one of those gun to your head things where yeah. it's like, okay, I know what I want to do. I know how I want to do it. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to just to now, protect my family. Sorry to interject, but from what I remember from the story, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, like you said, you almost sort of nonchalantly almost dropped it. And then there was one parent who was actually way more okay with it than you expected, right? Yeah, yeah. So when I decided to finally come out, the first uh, parent that I told was my mom. My mom had vocalized that she didn't want like a gay son before, but she was much more open-minded than my dad. Um, so, you know, I came out to my mom kind of like in an argument because I was just trying to get her to accept gay people just in general. I forced her to watch a documentary called For the Bible Tells Me So, which is about like accepting gay people from a religious standpoint, which is very cringeworthy. Mm. But I mean, I thought that it would work for her. And, you know, she said, well, um, you know, I don't have to worry about this because I don't have a gay kid. Mm. And, you know, my response wow. was, 
yes, you do. And it was like word vomit. You know, I didn't actually mm. anticipate that I would tell her that night, but it was just like the perfect moment. And so we had a really long conversation and she was perfectly fine with it, which was mind blowing to me wow. because I thought, yeah. oh, my God, you know, all my life, you know, I've been beating myself up about this, you know, contemplating whether or not I even want to live openly. But, you know, when you when you reach that conclusion and, and you think, OK, I'm done fighting it. It's either I be gay and live my life or I be miserable forever. Um, then, you know, it feels really liberating. So, you know, I decided, OK, I, I need to come out, even though I might not necessarily be in a good predicament. I was living with my parents. I was worried that my dad might kick me out. Um, I had to find some way to um, get through it because being in the closet was just no longer um, an, an option for me mentally. It was just yeah. like mm -hmm. eating away at me, you know, mm -hmm. and I fought it for so long to kind of just give in. It was like. <sighs> okay, this is not a big deal anymore. But the thing about coming out is it's it's simultaneously one of the most horrifying things that you could ever do, but also it's really liberating and it feels good because it feels like for, for the first time in your whole life you're, you're being honest with people. Um, but the thing about coming out is it's irreversible. You can't put the cat back in the bag. You know, you, you don't have one of those like men in black can't flashers like, that kidding. erases their memory. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If you drop an LOL JK, they're not going to believe you. Mm. So it's like if I if I'm going to do it, I there's no going back at this point. So your life changes for better or worse, but it changes and you're never the same again. Um, so, you know, I, I started to have a come out from, you know, person to person. I had my my easy go to's. You know, I had one brother and one sister who'd be very accepting. I had another brother and another sister that would not be accepting. So you go through the easiest difficulty first. You tell the people who would accept you. And then, you know, you can be yourself around enough people for a while, but then, you know, you kind of just have to be out. So I remember counting on my hand, okay, eight people now know who I am. And then I was like, okay, now we have to tell somebody who's more difficult. And so I tried to tell my dad and I couldn't. Like we were just watching TV and um, I don't remember what it was. Like they mentioned gay or something and my dad didn't say anything. Um, and so I thought, wait, okay, so he's not like freaking out like he usually does. Maybe is this like a window? So I was about to tell him and then, you know, your heart starts racing and then it's like, okay, I literally can't do it. Otherwise I'm going to faint. So I, um, decided to tell my mom that she has to tell my dad because it's like, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, I can't do it. You know, and he, he has, he has to know, but I can't do it. So, you know, I, I, um, I left the entire day I was gone. And I didn't hear back from my mom. And I'm like, oh, my God, please, I hope that she tells him. And so she was, like, nauseous, like, all day because oh, who wow. knows. Wow. Um, and, you know, she told me before he's going to accept it because if he doesn't, I can't stay with him. Wow. And e even though that comes from such a place of love, it's a horrifying statement because then you think, oh, my God, I could break up my family because of this. Was this the right decision? You know, um, and I don't want that to happen. I'd rather just stay in the closet. No. But, you know, I come home. And my dad is just on the couch watching TV and I just walk right past him. Don't make any eye contact. And I look at my mom and I'm like, did you, did you tell him? And she's like, yes. I'm like, how did he take it? And she's like, he's fine with it. Wow. And it's just, whew, it's wow. mind blowing Wow. because all my life I thought, oh my God, you know, if I ever tell him like he might actually physically assault me, like I was expecting to see all of my shit packed on the front porch. Um, and so to just have him have this complete different reaction, it really like it, it changed my relationship with my dad because I always kind of hated him um, even before I accepted myself. But all these homophobic comments like it just it's stuck in my mind 
it built up and it's, you know, I always just thought, well, you'd hate me if you know who I was, even before I accepted myself, you know, it's just, you have that subconscious thought in your mind, but to have him accept me was truly just, um, mind blowing. And, you know, um, after that, it's like, okay, if, if he would accept me, anyone can accept me. I have my parents. That's all you need right now. I'm safe. You know, it's, that's it. So I can tell anyone. So I got a little bit too cocky. Um, and I ended up start, you know, I started to live my life because I came out. So I started to volunteer for like the human rights campaign. Now cringe when I look back on it because I don't really support the organization anymore, but you know, do canvassing for them and whatnot. And so, you know, another family member had asked, what are you like, why are you doing gay rights activism? Um, and I thought, well, because I, you know, I, I explained because I believe in it and, you know, it kind of led to an argument. Hmm. And then that argument led to me, you know, word vomiting and saying, well, I'm doing this because I'm gay and I'm fighting for my own future, um, which was not a good way to come out to somebody who is not only very homophobic, but when you come out in an argumentative way, you know, then it's it's tough. So you, you have to try to backtrack, you know. And so so when I told this person, it was it was as if I like I think I in the video I described it as like it felt like I set off a nuclear bomb hmm. because like the room just felt dead silent. Wow. And then there's just no reaction for 10 seconds. And then all of a sudden, there's just tears streaming down their face, hysterical, where it's like, oh, my God, what did I do? This was not the right time. So then you try to walk back, you know, everything and say, all right, but, you know, here's or not walk it back. But you try to explain your position, because when you come out to someone more delicately, you can you can you can kind of control the environment mm -hmm. and build up to it. So that way they kind of can empathize with you. But I didn't do that in this situation. I got way too confident. Um, so I tried to explain like, all right, this, is, this isn't like me just be, being rebellious. You know, I'm 22 now. I've realized that for a while I just stopped fighting it. You know, I wanted to initially kill myself because I knew how badly it would be for the family if I came out. And so, you know, it, it was a very um, hard conversation and then, you know, that person told my nieces and nephews, actually, it probably would have been better if he killed himself low key because <gasps> mm. this is too difficult. Jesus. And so they had told me about wow. that. And then oh mentally God. that set me back so, so far. And then over the course of that next week, I had learned that um, that person had outed me to literally every single person that um, I've ever known. I'm talking like childhood friends, parents. <laughs> old church Jeez. members, wow. my brothers, wow. um, everyone. And so, you know, for me, what the reason why I brought up like counting on my hand, like, oh, eight people know now was because, you know, you keep like these mental tabs because you, you're really trying, it, it's like a controlled demolition, right? Like you don't want to just go in there and, and nuke the building. You want to bring it down. So there's no, you know, debris getting anyone hurt, something like that. Um, and so when, once you get outed, then that's it everyone knows. And so the backlash was really like swift and severe. Um, so, you know, other people in the family began to show up at my parents' house and scream at them when I was gone. Oh my God. Jesus Christ. Oh, wow. Another, where did, where did you grow up, Mike? So I grew up in Oregon, actually. So in Portland. So it's a very liberal city, um, liberal area, but my family was kind of, um, politically all over the place. Like they supported Bill Clinton, then hated him, supported Bush, then hated him, but very evangelical, very Christian, Gotcha. Um, particularly at the age of like 10. That's when they really got back into it. Gotcha. Uh, but that was, it, it was, you know, that, that whole situation was, um, 
it really escalated quickly to where, you know, family members would wait outside of my parents' home and just sit there in a car. That's um, insane. And, you know, you don't know at this point, you know, you kind of catastrophize a lot before you come out. Like I remember telling like my lesbian friend, but I thought, would she accept me? Because maybe she's cool with it, but she's like, this isn't right for you. You know, <laughs> so you, you, you think you try to expect the worst and hope for the best. So, you know, I wasn't sure, you know, so I start thinking this, this family member who's sitting in the car watching, do they have a gun? I know they have one at home. Did they bring it with them? Are they willing to, to kill me? Um, and you know, having, and then you also, you feel this guilt too, because, you know, I brought so much stress on my, on my parents, you know, they, um, they stood up for me and that was really difficult for them. But you know, the, the reason why I think it was all really worthwhile at that time. And I felt like I still had made the right decision was because as you know, these people were berating my parents, my father defended me. And, you know, that was something that I never thought that I would see, you know, Mm -hmm. given, everything that he said. So it's like, you know, he explained, this is my son and I love him no matter what. So if you don't like that, that's too bad. Um, And so, you know, at that time I ended up having like a panic attack, a mental breakdown. I thought that I had a heart attack when I was driving, but it turned out it was a panic attack. And I kind of developed a panic attack disorder that I still have till this day, you know, since that time. But that was like, the point where I came out. And then at that point, every single person knows I haven't talked to family members, but you know, they've reached out and called me a degenerate. So I don't, you know, good relationships were destroyed, but, um, things have kind of settled down, you know, for better or worse. Yeah. You know, there were some family members who did not accept it and then they accepted it and were very, very loving you know, they came to my wedding and told my husband that you're you're part mm. of the family now. And then three months later, start dating someone who's vehemently homophobic and then have to send me the message. Mm. You're you need to give up the sin. So it's it's mm. not like you come out and then you're good. You convince someone you won them over. You can yeah. go backwards. Wow. You know, you can go backwards really easily. Um, and so, yeah, it's 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 this ongoing process. But one thing that one reason why I think that that it's important to tell people is because younger LGBTQ plus people, they feel like things will never change, but the power dynamic really shifts. You know, when I first came out, it was me groveling at the feet of every single person, begging them to accept me. And, you know, as you grow older, as these people grow older and their kids grow up and they get more lonely, they look for these relationships. They, you know, remember the bond that we had before, you know, we came out and they start to kind of eventually regret the way that, you know, they reacted and they start to, you know, beg you for acceptance after they rejected you. And you're now in a power position to where you could say, actually, I'm an adult now. Fuck off. You know, um, and it's really important to have that because that's the ideal situation to come out in where you're in that position where you're you're living on your own and your family, you know, relies on you. But not every, you know, queer person has that. So but eventually that does happen. It does change. And, you know, these people who, um, you know, uh, really rejected me and treated me like shit, you know, every single one of them have been in a position to where they've had to rely on me for something. You know, Mm -hmm. I uh, I put together my dad's funeral when he passed away and it was right during covid. So, you know, we had to do it digitally via Zoom. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I was the only tech savvy tech savvy is a stretch, but, you know, I was the only person who could set it up. And I made like a whole video because, you know, that's my thing. So, you know, I, I got people to do their videos. And if they wanted to watch it, they had to go through me, you know, so they had to be very and that's kind of fucked up to like use that. But it's like, 
hey, you need access to the Zoom call, contact the degenerate, you know, and, you know, <laughs> you know, so it's like things change eventually and it's rough at first, but overall it, it's, it's, it's worthwhile, but well, and, very you know, traumatizing. I, I'm sure. Well, and I think it's, it is really important that you share your story because sometimes there can be an assumption like, yeah, you know, if you're gay now, it's no big deal, right? It's fine. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure there are a lot of young people who are in a very similar position as you were in, whose families mm -hmm. are not accepting, whose communities are not accepting, who don't feel like, ah, I can just be myself and it's no problem. So I do think it's important to be able to share, you know, that actually, yeah, it was really difficult, but you come out on the other side and people, mm -hmm. people can change and they can deal with it or they cannot. And really, ultimately, that's on them. Yeah. Yeah. Crystal, that, that's my bias, too, is that, like, I sometimes project the way I view these things onto everybody else. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, if, like it's, it's almost to the point now yeah. <laughs> where it, it, if somebody, if so, you know, somebody famous comes out as gay, it's like, so? <laughs> like, literally <laughs> nobody cares. Like, I don't care. But to your point, like, there's a huge difference between, you know, the theory of I am going to accept gay people, I'm pro-gay marriage and everything, versus the hardcore reality of, like, this is your son or this is your mm -hmm. daughter or this is, you know, a, a close family member or a close friend. There's, you know, there's a difference there between the theory of it versus the reality of it. And then when you tell your story, that really sort of puts into perspective how, um, you know, it's it's harder when it's not just the theory. And when you everybody mm -hmm. has a backstory and everybody has, you know, pre-existing positions and whatnot. But so what I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, uh, Crystal and I have talked about this, too. I, I think we all agree, and I think it's relatively obvious, sexuality clearly, it, it can't change. But right. the, the other question is, though, is it the idea of born that way, like everybody says, mm -hmm. or does sexuality sort of develop in it, it, during a developmental phase when people are really young, and then it becomes like concrete and, and is unchangeable? What's your take on that? Because when, my, my view is like, I, I just feel like, Whatever you're into, you're into, and it's kind of ironclad. I don't see it as even evolving over time. So mm -hmm. I think I fall more in the born born that way camp. What do you think? Yeah, I'm definitely in that camp as well. Um, because just for me, if it was environmental, then I would be the straightest person on the planet because my family was very, very, you know, um, very against it. You know, I had a bunch of siblings. Every single one of them were straight. So all I saw was, you know, straight people. Um, every single, you know, cartoon, every Disney cartoon was a woman and a man. And so, you know, it, it I don't know if there's like a gay gene or something. I don't know if there's something in my brain, but I know it's it's definitely something that was um, there when I was when I was born. You know, scientifically, I don't have evidence for that. But um, just thinking back to how natural it was for me, even in this very heter heteronormative environment you know when you see other kids start you know um talking about how pretty these girls are like i remember in sixth grade you know my friends they were like hey look at her and i'd look at her and i'm like what am i looking at <laughs> why are we so fascinated and you know they, they like she's hot right and i'm uh -huh. like yeah, sure. Placid city. Okay. You know, Placid city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like okay okay so it's like you know you um it, it, it i 
to me, if it were environmental, I feel like there would have been like some something that led me to that. But I didn't know that gay was a thing. Mm. I just was gay and very like looking back, like if going back to that video, like the home video of me, that still makes me cringe of me just like boogieing to the Spice Girls. It's, it's like, OK, that's definitely innate. Like that's, you know, this you don't learn to be that gay. You just, you know, you, just you kind are. of just are. You just are. Yeah. Yeah. So so I'm definitely I'm with you on that, Kai, where it's you're born this way. I mean, I think that environmental factors do have a role, but it's more the role in development. Like if you're in this environment where your parents are very loving and open minded, um, I, I think that you'll probably come out sooner and feel mm -hmm. a lot more comfortable with yourself and not be as ashamed as I was. But in terms of like your sexuality, I think that it's for the most part, you're you're basically born with it. And maybe, you know, some people are more fluid than others, but I think that they just have to inherently be more like bisexual. Yeah. And that's why I think the Kinsey scale is really important because, you know, there's there's a one to a six. One is exclusively heterosexual and um, six is exclusively homosexual. And most people are not ones or sixes. A lot of people are probably fives or, or not five. You know, most people are probably like twos. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, a lot of gay people are probably fives. I'd be a six, you know, then there's bisexual right. people who are threes, four, maybe. Um, but yeah, I think people are, are definitely different and it, it, it really environmental will determine how accepting you are of yourself. But I think definitely it's something that you are, you, it, you're hardwired this way. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. I definitely have become more of, um, like just in general, not just with sexuality, but with all characteristics, how um, <laughs> nature is so central after becoming a mom, because I have these three kids. Right. They are so different <laughs> as can be. Right. And, you know, I did more or less the same thing with all of them, but they are just wildly different people. Um, something else that really interests me that you said, though, is you're talking about how before you came out even to yourself, that your way of covering was by engaging in this like super homophobic like rhetoric and language. So does that yeah. make you, whenever you see someone who's like being really over the top with um, anti-gay or anti-trans or whatever kind of rhetoric and behavior, does that like pique your interest of like, I, I kind of know what's going on there. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that probably 50% of it is projecting because that's the way that I was. But when I see people like, for example, Steven Crowder, there's no way he's a cis man. <laughs> this is a trans woman. That's so true. Um, and I say this because you can see how comfortable he is when he dresses, you know, in women's clothing. And he does um, it all the time. You, he does it he all does it, the He finds time. every excuse. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it's like, sis, you're not fooling anyone. I mean, yeah. you're not fooling anyone. You could get married. You can have children. But that's not going to change who you are. So a, a lot of this, and this is what my husband says, he's like, you're projecting because that's the way that you were. Um, but I think that nine times out of 10, the loudest people are going to be the, the most gayest. Like, honestly, to me, if you were like wearing pink and like twerking, I would think that's less gay than being like overtly homophobic. Right. <laughs> because it's like you're just because and, and again, it's it may be pure projection on my part. But, you know, if, if you are kind of naturally effeminate that's kind of a defense mechanism. There are some things about you. Like I remember studying like my mannerisms in the mirror as a teenager thinking, wow. why is my, my like literally when I use my mannerisms, I'm very limp-wristed. Like I, I, you know, bob my neck a little bit too much. It looks a little bit too gay. <laughs> so I'd have to find other ways. Like, okay, if I can't stop that and I can't control that as easily, then what can I do? Well, I can kind of like broadcast this, you know, confident 
message of, uh, you know, I don't like gay people. And, you know, I was very, very adamant that I was like homophobic to the extent that like I was kind of an anti-gay bully in middle school. You know, I got almost expelled for bullying children, calling them the F slur and stuff. Wow. Um, wow. And if I didn't do that, then it would come back at me. You know, I was still kind of right. like bullied a little bit, but I had to be the bully. You know, that was that was my way of uh, dealing with it. So, you know, however way I could make up the uh, the gaps and fill that in with like homophobia, that's definitely what I did. So, wow. yeah, to your question, a thousand percent like these people who are very, very and you can really tell based on how much they focus on it. Like there's people who right. are just like homophobic yeah. and then they'll say, oh, well, I don't like gay people, but then they move on. But some of these people, they think about homosexuality more than I do. I mean, I, you know, I just I, I don't think about it that much. I live my life. You know, I play video yeah. games, smoke, drink. Uh, right. But these people like it eats away at them. And I see that eating away at me when, you know, when I was 17, yeah. I, that was me back then thinking, oh, my God, you know, these gay people, you know, we all want to be gay. OK, we all want to be with yeah. men. OK, <laughs> but we hide it. OK, That's so it. You, you just you see that. <laughs> There's been there's been pastors who like quite literally said like they, they treat homosexuality like everybody has the urge, but to defeat the yep. sin you have to have character and like override your attraction. But yeah, it's just they don't even consider the fact that there's actually plenty of people who don't have same sex attraction. It like doesn't occur to them that there are people who don't have same sex attraction. But like this whole conversation is 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 really reminding me why there's this massive disconnect um, between the left and the right when it comes to uh, trans issues and how there's like this mm -hmm. this this anti-trans mania right now where you have people on the right are yeah. arguing like, oh, the teachers are, are pushing gender ideology or whatever. Mm. And like in their mind, they think, look, if you talk about this stuff, if you cover this stuff, what you're doing is incentivizing kids to go in that direction. Like you're teaching them to be trans or whatever, but for people who have the same view that you and I have, Mike, and probably you have as well, Crystal, this idea of like, no, you kind of are what you are. It is kind of born that way. The notion that like by talking about trans issues, like what, you're going to have 30% of the population's kids are going to be like, no, I want to be trans. We view that as kind of mm -hmm. absurd because nobody, it, like nobody's going to willy nilly, casually, nonchalantly be like, why don't I fucking chop my dick off? Like, that's not what happens. Let me just casually dress up as the opposite sex and, and base my entire life around my identity being the opposite sex. It's not something that people come to casually and it's not something you get taught into. It's something that's already there and then you you choose to live in that reality. So the idea that teaching, teaching it is gonna lead more people to do it, it we view that as absurd. Yeah. Well, and, and to your point about that, like the chopping my dick off thing, that's literally what they think. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, Bill Maher, you know, made a joke about, oh, I'm going to go get the dick saw. And we're seeing more than just like conservatives, like they're clearly the worst. But you're you're even seeing this um, pushback from liberal fem feminists like TERFs. Right. Who yeah. They're trying mm -hmm. to disaggregate like, yeah, they're trying to disaggregate the LGB from the T. But you can't do that. I mean, the reason why this community is all in one category is because, you know, if you're born with a penis, you know, you're there's these expectations. You know, you're supposed to be masculine. You're supposed to be attracted to women. You're supposed to wear men's clothing. You're not supposed your gender isn't supposed to be female. So, you know, you're born a certain way. You're ascribed certain qualities. And if you defy that, you know, that's what makes you queer. It's you're discriminated against for the same exact reason. Uh, you know, if you're trans or gay, even though it's much worse for trans people currently. 
But yeah, you know, the, the thing about this is what what these folks don't realize is that, I mean, if you could, if you can, what is the word that like groom someone into being gay or trans? I would have been groomed into being the straightest person on, mm. on the planet. Like, you know, because it, not only did I see nothing but hetero, heterosexuality, um, I was told that being gay was bad and that being straight was good. You know, mm. I was told that, you know, just the condition to think that it was very natural, even if it was unnatural to me. Like, you know, any time I would bring home girls, you know, and my parents would think that I'm dating them, we'd end up just becoming friends because that's just my interaction with them. You know, I, I you know, never had romantic feelings towards women like that. So, you know, to the it, ignorance is really the key issue here. And the reason why ignorance is so huge in this moment is because we're in the stage of acceptance where you see this explosion sort of of people identifying as LGBTQ. I know you all probably saw the uh, the poll. Yeah, the survey. Like, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 20, what was it, like 20% of Gen Z is now LGBTQ+. And so I don't know if you both have seen the uh, the history of left-handedness and that particular graph. Mm -mm. Oh, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. How, oh, okay. more people are identifying as being, as being left-handed. And it's like, well, no, back yeah. in the day, they actively disincentivized anybody from being left-handed, and they would force lefties to write righty. And so now you're yeah. seeing the explosion because it's going back to what it actually is. So any increase exactly. in people coming out as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, et cetera, is more, they now feel comfortable enough to be like, actually, this is sort of what I am. So it appears like, oh, you know, it's growing and it's going to continue to grow. But really what's likely to happen is that you'll hit the number that it actually is by nature and it'll stay at roughly that moving forward in perpetuity as long as these people continue to be accepted. Yeah, and that is precisely correct. We're in the phase where the number is going up, but you know, it's we're gonna hit that that peak where we're gonna find out the true number, as you said. Um, but because the number is increasing, this lends credence to their claim, their hypothesis that, oh well, of course, it's because we're pushing it on people. We're pushing gender right. ideology on children. That's why they're choosing to identify. It's trendy. But I mean, you know, you're seeing Bill Maher. He joked about, oh well, everyone will be gay by 2050. Marjorie Greene said something to the effect that yeah. everyone's gonna be gay soon. Yeah. We you know, read that actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it, it's it's because they're so you know they're so ignorant. They don't know about the history of left-handedness and the things that people said about left-handed people were just truly you know nowadays it sounds bizarre, but back then you know it was very stigmatized. You know, not only was it economically really inconvenient to create tools for left-handed people, like what business wants to do that, right? It's it's cuts into their profits, but you know people actually thought like they were demonic and they ascribed like supernatural tendencies to right people uh, to left-handed people. <laughs> It was it was truly oh bizarre, truly bizarre. <laughs> and so, you know, the the rate went down before it increased. Wow. I'd love for you to talk more about what you just said about um, the T being separated from the LGB. And mm -hmm. because you do have, even within the Republican base, some level of acceptance of gay people now, there's this mm -hmm. attempt to weaponize trans people who do still face higher levels of discrimination to sort of roll back rights for the whole community. Could you just speak mm -hmm. a little bit more to that and how much you feel like those rights are really under threat? Yeah, so um, after marriage equality in 2015, uh, that was when you can kind of see this huge pivot towards trans rights because, you know, getting marriage equality was like the biggest accomplishment. You know, it's, it's not over at that point, but it kind of felt like, you know, um, lesbians and gays and bisexuals um, made so many accomplishments, but we weren't progressing on the trans issue 
as much. And so, you know, we really started to focus on trans people a lot more. And I say just generally because that's when they got more visibility. You know, Caitlyn Jenner came out as much as I hate her guts. You know, it was, <laughs> it was maybe the first experience that people had with a trans person, which is frustrating. But um, yeah, so what what we're seeing now is I think this pushback because it, this is the last attempt. You know, it's this this breed for lack of a better word, of of homophobes and transphobes is slowly but surely dying out. And, you know, they never just go quietly. So now this is like the last hurrah to stop it. Um, and they found out that it's really, really persuasive if you use children. That's why, you know, we heard about CRT and how our kids are getting indoctrinated. So if you can focus on children, then you can gin up a lot more homophobia. So they can't really, because, I mean, if you're against a trans person, um, you're literally against the First Amendment. You're against gender expression. So you have to try to find these edge cases, right? So that's why you never hear people attacking just the right to be trans. So what do they do instead? They attack, you know, kids in school, uh, you know, and this is being pushed on them. They attack these, like, edge cases where there's, like, this trans athlete, you know, and, oh, she's dominating women's sports. You know, we, we never followed sports before, but we care about this one yeah, now. Yeah, these great advocates you know. for women's sports, yeah, suddenly right. really care it, a lot. Mm -hmm. It's it's so frustrating um, because it's like, well, okay, well, if we can talk about biological disadvantages, I'd love to play basketball. It's one of my favorite sports, but I'm shorter than the other dudes. So do I get, like, all this, uh, you know, momentum behind me to kick these, you know, tall cis men out of the sports? But, you know, what, what we're seeing is, um, the narrative is changing and there's this attempt to disaggregate the T from the LGB because you can get a lot more support that way because people, there's less trans people, just statistically speaking. So there's much more ignorance there. So you can prey on the ignorance that way. And so it's a little bit easier to demonize trans people than it is to demonize gay people. Um, and that's why we're seeing this renewed effort. That's why we're kind of seeing this unholy alliance between TERFs and right-wing transphobes. Um, because mm. they're trying to turn gays and lesbians against trans people because that's if you can sow discord within the community, then, you know, that makes them less effective. It's kind of how we see like corporate Democrats sow discord between lefties oftentimes. Mm. Right. Yeah. It makes mm -hmm. us all less effective. You can, you know, try to cultivate infighting like that. But the the problem with that and the reason why it doesn't work at all is because the whole LGBTQ plus movement, the modern movement was catalyzed by trans women of color. You know, um, there's if you watch movies like, um, you know, about gay history, sometimes they'll whitewash it and it shows, you know, white gay men. But really, this was, you know, no, this was trans women who started the whole movement. And so I, I think that there's a lot of understanding with queer people that we all are hated for the same exact reason. You know, um, as I stated you're earlier, different. you're degenerate, right? Is that the idea? Exactly. It's right. like, you know, yeah. again, if you are born with a penis, there are certain expectations. And, you know, I defy them in the same way that trans women defy them. Um, and so there's a lot of since there's so much ignorance there, since a lot less people can say I have a trans friend, that right. is an opportunity mm -hmm. for bigots. Right. Because now a lot of people can at least point to one gay person that they know. You know, I have a gay friend or a gay son or whatever. Uh, but it's harder for trans people because there's le less visibility. And I think that that will change. change. Um, but, you know, it's not changing soon enough. And currently, because there's so little visibility for trans people, you know, there's a lot of predators who prey on that, who capitalize and exploit this opportunity for them. Um, but the thing, the reason why, you know, people like Bill Maher who will say, oh, well, I don't think there's much agreement between them. Or Megyn Kelly said this, too, I believe. 
And even people like Dave Rubin will say the same thing. Like, oh, I think that the T is different than the LG and the B. No, it's not, bitch. That doesn't even make sense. I mean, we're, we are, like, if you are gay, you're supposed to be with women. If you are not with women, you are defying gender norms. If you are, you know, born with a penis, you're supposed to be with women and wear certain clothing. And, you know, you're supposed to act a certain way. Like, trans and gay people, all queer people, defy these norms in a certain way. So that's why we're discriminated against, you know. And, and this and this is there's proof of this because if you look at all the arguments against gay people, you know, the, the bathroom predator myth, they're preying on your kids. It's the same thing. It's the exact same playbook, yeah, right? Yeah, they're running the same playbook. That's right. Yeah, yeah, so I don't know if that answers your question. But, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the same thing. And the ignorance is really the problem because it, it, it allows opportunity for, like, this – uh, growth of, you know, it's, hate. Well, it's, I think it's obviously even, there's even, you know, with Florida and DeSantis, he didn't even want to come out and say this is, you know, has to do with trans people or gender ideology mm -hmm. um, because there is a, a fairly high level. There's a poll I just saw of people basically, you know, it's a good to be accepting of, of trans people and there still is a lot more discrimination and still a lot more skepticism there when, with gay people. But you're mm -hmm. not on the like the American people don't agree with you if you're just completely mm -hmm. overt like we should be discriminating against trans people. So they had to couch it in all of this, the grooming line. This is about parents' choice and protecting our children. And oh, this has nothing to do with gay people. Has nothing to do with trans people. So even the most direct attacks at this point, they have to sort of they have to sort of hide a little bit what they're doing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. If you just come out and say. Um, we should have don't say gay laws because I don't think that gay people should come out. Um, that's going to be less popular. So you have to market it in a very different way. And Republicans are very savvy about this. Um, you know, you have to couch it in a different type of uh, language. You have to sell it. You, you know, the package that you're getting, it might have this bow and pretty. It's really pretty. You know, it's it's whatever. If you unwrap it, it's the same fucking package, though. Right. <laughs> so they just they have to find different ways to sell it because, you know, there's so much more visibility, particularly for, you know, um, gay, bisexual and lesbians. But for trans people, you know, um, there's not as much visibility. So if you're really going to push this um, this bigotry, you have to be strategic. And they really are, which is why, you know, it's you. if you look at Florida, uh, I don't know who conducted the poll. But the don't say gay bill is even popular with Democrats. And it's because, mm. you know, it's not really overtly in your face. You know, if if you were to pitch it to people as, do you support don't ask, don't tell for teachers? People would be against that because we recall don't ask, don't tell as this bigoted thing that military members couldn't come out of the closet. And that was bad. But, you know, even though this is effectively the same thing, people don't know that because of the way that it was marketed to them. And so... um, it's a lot easier to sell people this this bigotry if they don't really know what they're getting. Because, you know, I, I've seen like we've had horrible conversations with family members who have always been accepting that are reciting these anti-gay things that we hear from the GOP and Fox News. And they don't watch Fox News. So you'd think that they wouldn't have the brain rot that Fox News viewers yeah. have. But they hear it from their friends. They see it on Facebook. And so it's, you know, the whole coming out process is important because it kind of never ends. You know, when you win someone over that victory could be temporary because they might slip back. They might hear something and think, okay, you know, I have a gay friend. His name is Mike. I love him. He's awesome. But at the same time, I don't want him around my children, you know? So yeah, mm -hmm. it's, they can, they look for any cracks, right? And if they, if these, uh, you know, GOP strategists find that crack and they exploit it and it works, they just keep, 
digging and digging until it's just giant wound and we're trying to fill it again. And now yeah. we're to the point where since they've exploited that, you know, now you could just say, yeah, you know, gay shouldn't be around kids. They're all pedophiles. And now we have hate preachers coming out again saying we should execute them. So it's it's really, you know, you'd think that we're making progress, but seeing how quickly we could slide backwards shows, man, we've got a long way to go. And that's super well, frustrating. And, and it is easy to see, like, the libs of TikTok thing, how they would find mm – -hmm. they, they would have some examples of teachers who post stuff on social media that's really silly and bizarre and they sh probably shouldn't be saying those things to kids, but then they post it and they attach it to a broader political agenda that's, it, that's implicating an entire group of people. And, you know, that's – it's it's exploiting an edge case to crack down on an entire community. But I will say two things that are probably controversial here. Number one, I don't understand why the A is part of LGBTQIA+, because asexuality, mm. I, I don't see any discrimination against asexual people. And if any of those, those people seem like they're more liberated than people who are walking around <laughs> horny 24-7, like the rest of everybody else. If anything, we should have, like, you know, perpetually uh, horny acceptance over, like, asexual acceptance because asexual people yeah. seem to have a hell of a lot easier. And then the other thing that I'm not there yet on, and I had a conversation slash debate with Vosh on this a while ago is – I, like I could see the argument for everything there. I could see the argument for you know why gay people are as they are, why bisexual people are as they are, why transgender people are as they are. I cannot wrap my, wrap my mind around the xenogender thing, where they're like, I you know mm. I'm I'm a wolf, and it's like I bet you we're gonna mm. there's gonna come a day where we're scientifically able to determine the exact gene that makes somebody not only gay but the exact gene that would make somebody trans. Like all these things, I think are real as a heart attack. I don't think you're ever going to find the genes that are like, I identify as a deer, bro, and you, if you don't call me that, you're a bigot. <laughs> so I just needed to yeah. bust up our agreement fest here by dropping nuclear bombs of disagreement on everybody. <laughs> yeah, so um, I don't know anyone who identifies as like uh, xenogender or um, I don't know anyone who's asexual. Um, but really? For asexual, yeah. For yeah I guess they don't come out. They don't really say it. Well, it's from my understanding, and there's a really big asexual, a aromantic YouTuber who just did a really great video that I would recommend to everyone. I can't think of it right now off the top of my head, but with asexual people, it's almost like there's more confusion there, right? Because like for me, I talked about how I, you know, my friends were looking at women who were attractive, you know, or girls who were attractive when we were younger, and I, I there was no there there for me, but for asexual people. Um, they're part of this community because they're also very queer in their orientation. And there's maybe more confusion there because whereas I might find, you know, some attraction to men when I'm younger or boys when I'm when I'm a kid, they don't find attraction to anyone. And so there's this constant feeling of where do I belong? Mm. I'm not normal. I'm not natural. I'm not. These feelings aren't developing. Um, and so for me, like I had the the feelings not developing for women where they should have in theory. Uh, but they were developing for men. So it's like this feeling of I'm developing for in the wrong way. But for asexual people, it's like and, and hopefully I'm explaining it correctly for them. For asexual people, it's like, you know, I have nothing. And, you know, in society, you're expected to find a relationship. That's how, you know, you, you visualize happiness. It's, oh, you know, you have that white picket fence with, you know, a family and so if you can't even fill in the blank there with like a same sex partner, it leads to a lot more confusion. Um, and so, you know, the reason why asexual people are part of this community is because um, asexuality is a queer 
sexual identity. You know, it's not the norm because, you know, this really goes back to ascribed identities, uh, societal expectations, because again, based on, you know, the genitalia that you're born with, there are very, very strong expectations. I mean, even before, you know, um, you're born, you know, you purchase all blue things for, you know, your son, if it's a boy and all pink things, if it's a girl. So, you know, if you don't live up to that expectation, then, you know, it leads to a lot of confusion. And there's probably not like uh, as much bigotry openly against asexual people, but I really sympathize with their struggle just because of how much confusion I had. You know, it, it wasn't necessarily, it was confusion that I was gay and that wasn't how I was supposed to be, but at least there was something there that I could grapple with. But if you're not finding something to deal with, if there's no there there, if you don't have romantic or sexual feelings for people, then you just feel so abnormal and it's not hard to go it. long yeah not buying it no it's, I, uh, it sounds totally liberatory for people to just if they don't have any interest in sex 24 7 there are so many hobbies they could do there are so many jobs they could put their all into <laughs> like it's just it is I, I seriously i i sympathize more with perpetual horny people people who are sex addicts <laughs> who like can't stop fucking and you know they ruin their lives because they have to nut seven times a day and they're getting mm -hmm. strange pussy in a back alley. Like, that to me is more of a struggle than somebody who basically is like, look, I'm free of all that stuff. I don't have the same... It's almost like superhuman in a sense. Like, it's just such a human urge yeah, to want to do but, sex But I hear what Mike's saying because, first of all, we don't need to make the acronym into, like, a competition of oppression. So that's number one. Right, right. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just giving my number opinion two. on asexual yeah, Well, people. and I'm giving my opinion on asexual people. The other thing is, it is true. Society is very centered around sex and relationships. And so if you're just like, mm -hmm. this model is not for me, that puts you outside of the, like, standard issue cultural hegemonic model. And so I, I see what you're saying. It, that makes but sense to me. Being yeah. single is not and, a and negative problem, thing, Kyle, is There's no reason for a negative connotation or negative perception of single people. Single, there are plenty of single people who are perfectly happy, perfectly free doing whatever they want to do. So this idea that it, it's necessarily an issue or negative, like there's no legal discrimination against but does that, But that assumes that the whole purpose of the community is like, you know, just about this only has, this is all about its negative traits, you know? I think that's a weird mm -hmm. conception of the community. And Mike, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think a better mm -hmm. way of thinking about it is just, you know, this is a group of people who are outside of the norm, the standard, the, the hegemonic, culturally issued Normal norm. is made up. Nobody's normal. Nobody is well, normal. Yeah, but the sex and relationships are very central to our culture. There is no doubt about that. I guess here's why I'm struggling. I think it's because I never understood people who look at the way culture functions and there's this the default setting that I need to try to fit into the way that everybody does everything. My default setting is like, fuck the culture and fuck society on everything. You do what you want to do and what you feel is authentic mm -hmm. to yourself. So if somebody's doing that, but they feel this, this tension, this struggle is like, I'm not what everybody wants me to be. I just look at that as like, that's that that's normal, bro. Like it's, ironically, there is no normal. The most normal thing you could do is just be true to yourself which is going to be different for everybody. There's going to be some people who like Seinfeld and the Wu-Tang Clan, and there's going to be some people who like Harry Potter and <laughs> tennis. Like, nobody, every, nobody's normal. There is no normal. You know what I'm saying? So I just well, don't and, see an issue there. Anyway, here's, sorry, go Here's ahead. what I'll say. No, here's what I'll say to that, because I think that when you, when you frame it from that perspective of, oh, my God, these horny people who are nymphomaniacs, basically, you know, they, they don't have time to do anything, um, 
it's you know from a, the standpoint of people who are asexual it's it's also like a burden in that same way where you know which is why they're part of the lgbtq plus community because they're you know they they feel like they have to be a certain way and it, even though it's like oh well they have all this time because they're not having sex or they're not horny <laughs> it really is a burden for a lot of them and which is why you know finding belonging and learning oh asexual people you know i, I guess that's me um you know it, that's that's all part of pride really it's like yeah this is who you are you don't you don't meet these expectations you know, um, you could, yeah, that's, that's you. Um, and, and sure, you know, there's not, as, as Crystal was saying, like, it's not like oppression Olympics, like, you know, okay, we're not ranking asexual compared to like trans or anything like that, <laughs> but it's just a matter of like all these, all these queer identities that we didn't know about previously that have always existed. It's about finding like belonging. It's like, yes, if you're asexual, you're also queer, you know, there's, there's, you know, space for you here as well. You, you don't, you know, what was a burden to you should no longer be a burden. So, you know, even if, you know, you, you might think of it in terms of, oh, well, man, I wish I had that much free time. It's not necessarily that simple because all that free time that, you know, they might have, it really, it, it's, it, you kind of get this complex where it's like, why am I not developing? Did something go wrong in my puberty? Like, what's what's going wrong here? So, I, I mean, it, part of it is, you know, there's not a lot of asexual people. So it's, you know, we don't necessarily know. But yeah, there's not there's not discrimination uh, as much there. In terms of like xenogenders, I don't, I've never met anyone who's uh, xenogender. So I really can't speak to that. And I'm kind of a, a boomer in the LGBTQ plus community. But what I will say is that you know, gender itself is completely a social construct. And so um, I am absolutely open to the possibility of there being genders that we haven't heard of. You know, I mean, we think of the gender binary, and that's going to be the most common. There's, you know, male, female, and then there's a lot of room in the middle, you know, where non-binary people are. But then there are also people perhaps who are outside of that spectrum. I mean, technically, like anything, if you really think about gender as a social construct, anything can be a, a, a gender. Like if I wanted to, you know, paint my face gray and, and call myself robot. I technically could. And to me, it, you know, if I saw somebody that said, Hey, my gender is robot, I wouldn't necessarily understand that at all because I, you know, I'm, I'm on the gender binary myself. Um, so, yeah, but you're I mean, a massive we, bigot. you just outed yourself as a bigot, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's just a matter of like, um, the way that I, and this is my, um, my whole thing on, on these education edge cases, and, you know, the whole gender, uh, xenogender thing. Um, there's just not enough people who identify as xenogender for me to really know. Like, there's not a big enough sample. So I can't necessarily speak on that. But I, I, sure, there's a possibility that somebody can have a really unorthodox gender. And I think that'd be perfectly fine. Um, you know, m my fear about that is that if there's somebody that decided to say, I identify as deer or wolf or whatever, like conservatives would take that and then they would, they would blow that up and say, Hey, this is what they're doing to See, our kids. We warned like, you. Well, yeah, they are, like, that's yeah. exactly what they are. Like, Do you remember that whole, yeah. like, uh, there was some fake story about how they were putting litter boxes in the school or whatever. Yep. And <laughs> that they was from lives of TikTok. Yeah. They yeah. That was lives of TikTok. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, and, and so, yeah. You know, it, it kind of puts queer people into this position to where each one of us feel as if we all have to be uh, PR representatives for our community, which is totally unrealistic, right? Because they're, just like in any community, there are shitty LGBTQ plus people, you know, so you can find these examples of like an, a, a really shitty gay guy 
and then blow that up and say this is what they're like. And it's 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 persuasive to people if you don't know anyone. You know, it's easy to fill in the blanks with bigotry or what you see on social media. Um, so it's for me whenever I think of like these more obscure things like xenogenders and whatnot, um, I I think that the hyper focus on it is I try to downplay it because I don't know anyone, so I, I don't you know I don't know anything about that. But um, you feel it's, like it's, it's more of a moral panic than it is reflective of some grow I large and so. growing reality. I think there are, so. There are and this people might... who are out as xenogender, just for the record. Like it's not a lot to yeah. your point, Mike. It's not a lot, but there are some people yeah. who are out as xenogender. And to Crystal's point, I think that's the thing. That's the thing that I get stuck on is that like I remember mm-hmm. back in like 2010 when we would talk about gay marriage and gay rights, and the standard go-to response from conservatives would be like. What's next? Are you going to marry your Chevy? <laughs> and we'd be like, that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. And then I just saw an article last week that was like, this person's marrying their fucking car. And I was like, oh, Jesus fucking Christ. Come well, on. Actually, because I think that's disrespectful to the actual, the real struggle for gay rights. I think that there is an element that in some instances goes too far. And then it sort of besmirches the, the validity of of mm-hmm. gay rights and trans rights and things of that nature. So I think that's why those edge cases stick in my craw a little bit. And it's like, y'all are trying to tank the whole shit because you're goofy as fuck. <laughs> well, okay, here's what I will say to that. Um, besides the bigotry standpoint, I, I think that humans are just like infinitely curious. And I say this, and this is also me projecting, but like there's, to the guy marrying a car, like I watched the TLC show and this guy literally claimed that he was in a relationship with the car. And he was like laying, he was like, I swear to God, he was laying under the car and he was like kissing the bumper. He was like rubbing the hubcaps. And I'm like, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> um, you know, and it's like, it's, it's fascinating. It's bizarre. I wonder how many like car fuckers there are. If that's, <laughs> I, and that's probably, you know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and, and then there was another guy who was like attracted by balloons popping. And I'm just sitting here cry what? laughing. Like, what the fuck? You know, he, how do you, the balloon wow. pop and he'd be like, oh. And I'd be like, what the <laughs> fuck am I watching? And so, like, I, I think that people are curious, right? Things that are not of the norm, they're really, like, they're looking for that. But, like, if if that TLC segment came out in, like, 2008, you can easily see, you know, conservatives saying, this is what gay people want. I mean, if you can marry, you know, someone right. of the same yeah. gender, then, of course, anything goes. And so th- the problem is there's always going to be that moral panic there. Like, you're not going to get rid of reactionaries. But the best thing that you can do is just not let these, like, edge cases be indicative, like, not let people say that these have general applicability, you know? So, like, to the extent that people identify as, like, xenogender or deer, you know, it... It's I always try to have the same consistent philosophy, live and let live. You know, I'm not xeno... I don't know anyone who's xenogender, but if they genuinely want to live that way, do it, you know, have fun. Um, it's not for me, but it's cool. But that's not like indicative of most people. And certainly, I don't think that we're in at risk of like this huge xenogender movement where kids start coming home with cat. Well, okay, maybe cat ears is a little thing. You know, if you watch Twitch, lots of uh, cat boys and cat girls on Twitch lately. But you know, um, if you guys saw the razor headphones with the cat ears, is what yeah. I'm referring to. But yeah. you know, um, it's 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 easy to make a moral panic out of these things, and you know, it's 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 entertaining and alluring, but I think that really targeting, like homing in on like the core core things, is important. And there's there's other like there's misrepresentations about actual you know LGBTQ people. Like I saw an article from the Washington Post. I don't remember who wrote it, 
it was one of these libs, I think, and he talked about how we have to stop the eighth grade pronoun police. And that really, and I'm, I'm not sure if I'm remembering the article headline correctly, but it essentially made it seem as if pronouns is like the biggest thing ever. And if you think about trans issues because of the way that it's portrayed, you think that, oh my God, pronouns are the biggest issue that trans people are facing. No, not at all. You know, and if you if you talk to a trans person, of course, they want to you know, they want you to use the proper pronouns. They don't want to be harassed and you intentionally misgender them. But this is not the biggest fight, you know, that they are dealing right now. And, you know, it's easy to get caught up on these smaller things. Yeah, um, I agree with things, you. I, I yeah, agree with you. Know that. What I, mean? I like, think, yeah, the, the, the serious issues are the serious issues. And those deserve the bulk of the attention because there's there are real problems there that need to be addressed. I mean, we've talked about this all the yeah. time about how we still in over 20 states, you can still get fired just because you're trans. So the, the boss could literally say, I'm firing you because I'm not comfortable with the fact that you were born male and now you identify as female. And that's a problem. That's that's a green light on systemic discrimination. I don't know how often that happens, but just the fact that there's no legal codification and, and protection for trans people in the same way that there is for on race, for example, or gender, for example, I think that that's a big problem. I think that the only thing well, I'd say- I think say that actually changed last year, I wanna say. I think oh, that there they? was a Supreme Court that? case- I believe so. I can't tell you the name, but I um, basically Alita was attacking Gorsuch for siding with the liberals in that. Oh, okay. So um, maybe I'm wrong on I that. Maybe they did sure. extend the protections. You um, might be. Are you referring to the um, the Equality Act where you could kick people out of like businesses or something? Because that I, that is one that has not that I think is pending. Well, I'm I'm referring to the fact that there are basically in all the blue states they have on the mm -hmm. books the same sort of uh, civil rights protections for right. trans people as they do for gay people as they do for uh, different races and religions etc but my understanding was that in the red states there those are not those aren't there there are no mm -hmm. the same civil rights protections are not there for trans people but if you're right and you're talking about a federal court case that ruled in the opposite direction then indeed they would be protected but if that is the case i certainly haven't seen it it will it'll be reversed if it isn't so <laughs> either way you'll be <laughs> right yeah adult, right in like True. a year you know um i had one last question for you mike that is harkens back to something you said earlier in the podcast which is you said that one of your goals is to radicalize liberals and move them from you know pete Buttigieg to bernie sanders effectively what have you found to be most effective there what's worked for you and what's your approach <sighs> Being, honestly, being really belligerent and in your face and being persistent. Because I've tried to have conversations with libs and you get nowhere. Um, it's like talking to a brick wall. Um, but you really have to make the case as to like, you know, things are very bad right now. And I don't think you realize that the reason why you support libs is in part because they're complicit in the fact that, you know, the Republican Party is becoming more more fascistic. So it's easy to accept that, you know, of course, they're better than Republicans. Um, but that bar is really, really low. You can't just be not bad. You also have to be good. And the reason why Republicans are so bad currently is because Democrats haven't been addressing the material needs of people. Um, you know, we, we've talked about LGBTQ plus rights here on on this show a lot. And um, the reason why Republicans, I think, this is my theory, are really focusing on social issues once again is because, you know, if we had a lot of really big victories in the LGBTQ rights movement. We had marriage equality, which was something I didn't think that I'd seen in my lifetime. 
So what happened after that? We started to talk about healthcare. We started to talk about education. And Republicans don't want to have that conversation because they'd lose every single time because they don't offer anything. They're neoliberal. They want to make sure that everything is privatized. Um, so they try to keep us fighting these culture war issues because they don't want to move on to education and healthcare and the economy. And, you know, you can't you have to fight these issues because you can lose ground that you've made. But the Democrats haven't learned that yet. They haven't learned that if you actually take on these material issues, make it so that way, you know, you raise wages and whatnot, give people health care, that's going to change things. Republicans will still probably be very far right and radical, but the base itself isn't going to be as susceptible to radicalization if you deliver for them materially. You know, so if you start thinking, oh, my God, I'm, I'm never going to get out of poverty, you know, you try to look for answers. And if you don't know any better, if, you know, a Trumpian figure comes along and says it's immigrants or trans people, you believe them because it may not be an accurate explanation, but it's an explanation nonetheless. Um, so I hope that I don't know if what the, I don't remember what the question was, but I hope I answered it. How you radicalize, how you radicalize the libs. Yeah, you, yeah. Totally yeah. Right. It. you know, I'm trying to try to explain it in that way. Hopefully that's mm -hmm. you know. well. And I actually think. You know what I, I saw after the leak of the uh, impending any day now, really, Supreme Court decision overturning Roe, it was so clear how Democrats had just postured on the issue and not actually cared to do anything about it that I saw a lot of people, and especially this is an issue that they have made, you know, central to their politics because they also don't want to really deal with the material conditions. So, you know, that's something that they want to talk about and use in elections and do it over and over again. And then it's like, wait a second. They've been working on this outcome of overturning this decision for, like, decades. You knew this was coming. You had power multiple times, and you did nothing. That opened, I saw, like, a lot of people's eyes who are normally diehard, vote blue, you know, you know, libs all the way, with maybe the globe emoji in their bio, oh, say, like, this, this is messed up. You clearly... Miss the miss your opportunity here. Like you don't actually stand for the things that you claim to stand for. And what good is putting you in power? What good is voting for you again in the midterms when you're just gonna like pretend you're gonna do stuff that you're not gonna do? So mm -hmm. I that did make me feel like there were some cracks emerging. And also just look manifestly if your whole project is we just have to be a bulwark against the Republicans. That's not working out very well. I mean, the Republicans are about, yeah. through the neoliberal approach of the Democrats, the Republicans are about to take back the House and probably the Senate and very possibly the White House and have, you know, total entrenched power for quite a while. So even if your only goal is we got to be a bulwark against the Republicans, how's that working out? Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. And the problem is that Democrats, and I feel like they've got to know this, right? But Democratic Party strategists are the dumbest people in the world, I, I'd argue. Um, you know, they they think, oh, well, it's not that we failed. It's that our messaging failed. Right. Politically, we're doing excellent. We're just not getting the credit failed. we deserved. We need a exactly. new slogan like the Putin price hike. That's going to save us. Yeah. Or the ultra MAGA. Right, you know, it's like, right. That's not, that doesn't work. Like, no, okay, people aren't going to be susceptible to messaging. They need to see their wallets get fatter. That's what we need to see. Um, and so, like, Democrats just don't realize that. And I, I think you're right. I think that it's hard to ignore how much Biden has been a failure. Um, 
because it's it's undeniable. I mean, he's going to get blown out at a time when we're seeing Roe possibly uh, be overturned, um, more attacks against LGBTQ plus people again. You know, uh, we're seeing inflation. And so, you know, you, you have you have to deliver for people and to not even do the bare minimum is really frustrating. Like with, with student debt cancellation, like Biden was going to um, there was these articles where he was supposed to he talked to the, a member of the Hispanic caucus and said, oh, you're going to be really happy. We're going to cancel a substantial amount. I'm paraphrasing. But then like a day later, he's like, I'm not canceling fifty thousand dollars. You know, Chuck <laughs> yeah. Schumer said right. this. Is he my spokesperson? Mm -hmm. right. And I'm like, Jesus, at least give me a week to like fantasize about what it would be like to not have this debt. <laughs> But you crushed my fucking dreams like that. I mean, Jesus Christ. Like, there's just, there's no fucking hope in this country. So, you know, it's it's hard to not see that if you're liberal, you know? So, and one other thing that I will say, and this, this sounds like disingenuous, but it's true. We have to learn from Republicans and hide the ball a little bit. This is one thing that I've learned um, because being out in your face, Bernie bro, uh, being like a socialist, it really turns off these lips. And the biggest example was when I went to a town hall with Jeff Merkley. And I asked him, this is my senator, I'm in Oregon, for those not, who don't know. I asked him what he can do um, about Julian Assange being uh, extradited by the United States. Um, and the second that I mentioned Julian Assange, uh, the libs behind were like, oh! it's like, what the f <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they, they don't, so we have to try to market ourselves in a different way. And rather than like maybe, and I thought about that, like what, how do how do you get those people who are so MSNBC brained mm. where this isn't about Julian Assange? I don't care what you think about him. This is about like the First Amendment and protecting journalists. Um, so how do I market that? And I, I thought long and hard about that. And it's, you know, we have to try to speak in their terms. Like when we, when we think about Trump uh, supporters in the Rust Belt, we always try to find language to appeal to them. Rather than saying Medicare for all is free healthcare, we say it's a small business tax cut. So how do we, what's the liberal equivalent of that? And I think it's to try to hide the ball a little bit, which I, I hate saying it because it sounds so disingenuous, but like what I've been doing on my channel, and I have no idea if this is working, uh, um, is rather than saying, hey, I'm a socialist, socialism good, I, I just explain why capitalism is bad. You know, so you kind of like you lead them to a particular conclusion or at a minimum, you get them to think about something that they've never thought about before in their life, which is, wait, maybe capitalism isn't the best economic theory in the world. Maybe there's a lot of flaws with this um, and, and trying to not be like in your face with it, I think might help. But at the same time, it's it's hard to say, because like, you know, when we when we when we talk about these things on our show, we're not like quantifying it. So I want it like I wish there was some way to know what works and what doesn't work. But then again, yeah. if we do that, then we're turning into Democrats by, you know, focus testing everything that we yeah, say. And we're just yeah. people. Different, different things work for different people. That's the that's the mm -hmm. unfortunate but inevitable conclusion is that with some people, yeah. they want you to hold their hand and walk them down the path slowly and gently explain it and you know, sort of slowly lean into it. Other people want the belligerent in your face. I'm just going to tell you the truth. And if you don't fucking like it, that's your problem. Now, you mm -hmm. know, man up, bitch, and accept it. Like some people <laughs> like that. Some people like it yeah. softer. Um, and, you know, I, I think the only path really is just for each individual creator, whoever they may be, to be, to be true to yourself. And whatever arguments you feel mm -hmm. are most authentic and persuasive to yourself is the one you use for everybody else. And And to your point, you know, that's why... Whenever people ask, oh, you know, what's your political label? I can give a list of different political labels that apply to me, yeah. and I'll use them in different contexts. You know, if I'm uh, mm -hmm. amongst 
uh, a group of people who have very similar politics to me, I could let it all hang out and be like, yeah, I'm probably libertarian socialist or something like that, or libertarian leftist, whatever you want to call it. If I'm, you know, in an environment that's slightly more hostile, I could also use the label, and this still is accurate and still applies. I'm, I'm kind of view myself as an international centrist. I kind of view myself as a mm. moderate. If you look at the American people, I'm right smack dab in the middle of mainstream American opinion on 95% of the issues. So, hey, that's pretty moderate in my eyes. So I, I think it's all yeah. about being true to yourself and then also um, when in Rome, <laughs> adjust to the Romans. And as long as you tell yeah. the truth, then, then you can you can say it over and over. But Mike, this was awesome, man. This was a phenomenal podcast. Tell everybody where they can find you on Twitter and YouTube and Twitch and all that fun stuff. Yeah, you can find me on YouTube. Uh, I'm just The Humanist Report. You can go to humanistreport.com. That's the hub for all of my social media stuff. My Twitter is at Humanist Report, but don't follow me. It's You don't need to delete your Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike is over there on his uh, channel grooming people to be leftists. That's what he's doing. <laughs> Unapologetically so. <laughs> um, great to talk to you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right, y'all, that was Mike, uh, Mike Figueredo of The Humanist Report. Um, now, it's true to say now, Crystal, he's an OG. I still, it's hard for me to not think of him as like a young <laughs> up-and-comer, you know, because he was in the wave after me. Um, but yeah, he's been around the block. He's been doing his thing. Now he's over on Twitch. Um, I respect anybody who's in this place and hasn't lost their mind. And yeah. so, yeah. <laughs> he's finding ways to, to get through it. I actually appreciated how sort of candid he was about how he's adjusted post Bernie and how he's found a way to love what he's doing again and sort of embrace the process because yeah, I mean, if you're going to have longevity, like you're going to have to, you're going to have the ups, you're going to have the downs, you're going to have times where your audience loves you, where they're pissed off at you, where there's tons of energy and the left's very unified and you like have a clear goal and clear focus and times where you're kind of in the wilderness so like you said it really is about figuring out how to enjoy the act of you know the creative act of what you're doing for you know uh, for itself yeah i think that's the key and i think there you know there are plenty of examples of people who don't do that and they flame out or they lose their mind because of social media and they mm -hmm. can't get it back mm -hmm. so yeah mm -hmm. it's just there's there's minefields all over the place and uh you know he's found a way to stay true to himself and uh one of the things that made me want to have him on was seeing his, I watched his whole coming out video. I don't think you saw it, right? Mm -mm. He, yeah, he talked about it on Twitch. It was a long seg. I don't know, it was like 20 or 30 minutes, something like that. I sat there and watched the whole thing and I was like, damn, that was like a powerful story. And then I could tell as he was telling the story here, you were like, God damn, I didn't know all that happened. Yeah, well, it is sort of easy to assume that it's just like, oh, it's no big deal to come out these days, you know, and course people are going to be accepting like who wouldn't be accepting but the reality is for a lot of people it continues to be very difficult to you know live as who they are and deal with the blowback from you know family members who aren't supportive and you know you would love for every story to be perfect and everybody comes around and it's just this easy trajectory towards acceptance but um the reality is progress isn't inevitable, progress isn't, you know, guaranteed. And so I thought it was interesting reflecting on his personal narrative of how he had, you know, some people who surprised him for the better, some people who surprised him for the worse, some people who came around and then regressed. It's kind of a parable for our overall politics, isn't it? It's a parable for everything. Yeah. Everything in life, you know? It seems like it's just a chaotic mishmash of all different types of responses and things happening and whatnot, but... 
yeah, anyway, guys, definitely check out um, Mike's channel, Humanist Report. Show him some love, give him a sub, all that fun stuff. And thank you to everybody who is subbed to this show. Thank you for everybody who's signed up on Substack. Again, you could sign up for free and get the audio version on Saturdays, or you could pay $5 and get the video version on Fridays. Again, very proud to mention as much as I can that we take zero ad dollars for this show and it's fully funded by you guys. So anyway, love you guys. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. See y'all next week.